So today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3. And you can turn there. It's in the New Testament. It's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far to the right. If you're at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're too far to the left. Uh, You can check the table of contents or you could just Google A-C-T-S-3. And that'll get you to the right place on your Google Bible. Um, We're going to be looking at an account where Peter and John saw a man who had been lame since birth. He was paralyzed in his legs since birth and he was laid at the the gate beautiful and he experienced healing. Uh, The book of Acts is, uh, it's the acts of the early church. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's basically what happened after Jesus uh, died, rose from the dead. Uh, and then he discipled his disciples for one last blast. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out on these disciples. And it's kind of how did they, how did they respond to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and Jesus's command to go and make disciples of all nations. So the acts are every kind of an account and it swerves across the narrative of acts, uh, encompasses a lot of what happens in the letters that are written. So for example, um, in the, in, um, what's, what's a good example? So Paul's missionary journeys. We can see Paul's miss, missionary journeys. And you can see how his missionary journey ties into the letters that he wrote. The letter that he wrote from second, you know, in first, first and second Timothy, the letters he wrote to Timothy. You can see what happened where he was when he wrote second Timothy. Because in Acts 28, the narratives, uh, the letter and the narrative collide, right? So what happens in a lot of the letters has life inside of the books of book of Acts. Does that make sense? Second Timothy was actually written right after the book of Acts. It doesn't Acts doesn't include the writing of Second Timothy, but it leads up to where Paul wrote Second Timothy. So today I'm going to read a lot of uh, a lot of the passage. It's it's 11 verses, and it's going to feel like uh, it's going to feel like a lot because sometimes we focus on one or two or three verses, uh, but I am going to read all 11 uh, verses for us today, uh, and it should be on the screen behind me. But if it's not, just I'll let you know when I'm done. (laughs) Like, wake up, right? College students, it's like, start reading. They're like checking their phone. So don't switch to Pokemon Go is all I'm at. Just pay attention. Um, So Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That was about 3 p.m. And a man lame from birth was was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and strengthens were, uh, his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement. And what had happened in, uh, what had happened to him while they while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called solomon 's 
Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would draw close to us and help us to understand who we are in this narrative. To help us understand what you've called us to and what your heart is for us according to your good purposes. Amen. Real quick, one more thing about the five for five. One of the things as you do the five for five, you could read your for, for your five minutes. And then I want you to ask three questions about the text that you had just read um, or do three things. I want you to observe and ask the question, what happened? And the second step is to move towards interpretation and ask, uh, what's the significance of what happened? And then the third, the third part would be to apply it and say, God, is there anything that I need to change about how I'm living? Is there anything that I need to, to change about because of what I've learned in this passage? Is there anything that I need to apply to my life or to believe differently or, or act differently? as a result of reading this, and that's the application. And so as we, look at, as we look at passages of Scripture, that's something that we often do. And so what we'll do is we'll look at this passage and we're going to observe some things. We're going to observe that the ninth hour doesn't mean much to you and me, but then we, well, then we could look it up and say, what does the ninth hour mean? It means 3 p.m. And 3 p.m. was, it, it even says it right here, at the hour of prayer. And it, it was a traditional time. It was a cultural time of prayer for the Jewish people. And the early Christian church adopted the same time uh, for a significant moment of prayer, having to do with the resurrection of Jesus. But also, it's just the culture. Hey, it fits, right? It's like everybody else is praying at this time. We can pray at this time, too. We've got this tradition. We've got it built into our schedule. We've got it built into our calendar. We're just going to change the nature of our prayer. And now we're going to pray in the name of Jesus. And now we're going to seek the face of God and the purposes of God. And we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to move through us instead of what we had previously done in, in our Jewish tradition and our Jewish religion and culture. Uh, the beautiful gate. Now, scholars love talking about the beautiful gate. And if you were doing this five for five on your own, you could say, what is the beautiful gate in the book of, of Acts? And you could look that up. And if you have any questions about how to do this, I'd be, I would be more than happy to have a class before, before church on a Sunday morning or even after service on a Sunday morning so I could show you some tools that are free and trustworthy. That's the trick with the internet now. Like anybody can say anything, right? And then people grab onto it and then they're piling on top of something that wasn't even true in the first place. It was just an idea because of this false ethos, this false credibility that gets, that gets given to people with a nice website, right? And also creepy websites, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, so the gate beautiful and biblical scholars look at this and they try and figure it out. We think it's the east gate and it's, it's the area basically to, to enter into the temple you had to, you couldn't, you couldn't be lame and enter into the temple and he was set outside of it. And this beautiful gate was made of Corinthian brass and it was a beautiful spectacle and it was gorgeous. And, and so there are some, some ideas about it. It's not really significant for anything I want to talk about today, but it's one of those things that as you make these observations, you'd be like, I don't know why they call it a beautiful gate. And they call it a beautiful gate because it was beautiful. It's not always really deep. Right, so we, we know that Paul, Paul and John didn't, or I'm sorry, Peter and John, they didn't have gold and silver because they say as much. They know that now. It's interesting because Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a physician, and so he took care on some things that maybe some people wouldn't have taken care about. He says this man was lame since birth. 
where in another narrative, somebody might just be like, there was this handicapped guy and he was there. There was this paralyzed guy and he was there and they just walked up. But, uh, but Luke, the person who wrote, wrote Acts, being a physician goes, oh, he, he had been lame since birth. This is a chronic condition. This is something that he had always done. He takes note that they laid hand, that, that, that which hand they grabbed onto. He took note to say that Peter and, and John both noticed the guy and they said, look at us. He took a lot of details from this moment, but they're not details for a recipe. I'm not, so if you see somebody who's, who's begging in, in D.C. or you see somebody who's asking for money, this isn't a recipe to heal them. I just want, that's not the purpose of the books of Acts to, to be prescriptive, right? It's narrative. And it tells us what happened. It tells us the kind of things that are possible. In this case, it gives us a lot of detail and it helps us know, man, that's a lot of detail to give. And that gives us enough to know, man, this is a trustworthy account. What's really cool about this account is that he mentions the crowd a bunch of times. And one of the things that mentioning the crowd does, now this was written then, And it gives anybody who reads it the opportunity to go back and say, this isn't true. But Luke wrote, hey, no, there were crowds here. People saw this. People marveled. He ends up going in and preaching in front of the the Pharisees. He, you know, Peter goes in and he preaches his heart out for the second time in the book of Acts. And he, he lays it all out and calls people to repent. So there are a lot of witnesses to this thing. It's not something that happened in private. And to be honest with you, that's one of the things that I take a lot of comfort from when I read the Bible is how many witnesses there were to all of these things. That the Bible isn't the only account of what happened. You have the biblical account and then you've got extra biblical or outside of the Bible accounts of similar things happening because it mentions people's names and it mentions, it mentions the other things that were happening. It tells you the exact geographical location. I know that if I was trying to start a cult, I would give you as few details as possible (laughs) and everything would have magically disappeared when I was done and nobody else would have been there. Because you wouldn't be able to challenge any of the information. And if you didn't believe me, you would have just had to take my word for it that I saw a miracle and I experienced this miracle. But they're saying, there's this dude who everybody knew. And it happened in front of everybody. And he did this every day. We all know Joe, the guy who's always there. He's the guy who's always at Starbucks. He's the guy who's always at the water cooler. And you're like, does this guy even work? You know, he's the guy who was always around. And nobody could deny that he was both there often and not able to work, not able to move, fully dependent on the alms. So those are the kind of observations that I enjoy making when I read scripture. And what it does is when you start asking these kinds of questions about it is, you know, when you've seen it from, I'm looking at the podium, when you've seen the podium from one direction your whole life, asking questions allows you to see the podium from a whole nother direction. It's the same podium, but I've got so many more different details from here. Like from here, I can see my notes. <laughs> and that's helpful, right? And, and, then, and then from over here, there's a scratch on the podium that I didn't see when I was over there. But asking questions allows us to, to get a broader perspective. And then interpretation would be, you know, what's the significance of all of these things? And that's mostly what I'm going to talk about today is the interpretation or the significance of, of what we find in this text. And to do that, I want to look at this same text from several different perspectives, from at least four, depending on time, we'll do five. The first perspective that I want to look at this from is from heaven, not even mentioned in this account. In John chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, I've, I've got to go, but you're going you're gonna to receive my Holy Spirit. And he promised that you're going to do greater things than me. 
This is Jesus who rose people from the dead and healed blind eyes, saying that the disciples were going to do greater things. And I'm sure the, in, the angels in heaven were kind of like, ooh, that's kind of, a, kind of a tall bill. Like, we believe you, Jesus, because we're angels and all, and that's our job. But that's, that's a high bill. I wonder if these knucklehead disciples who got scared from a storm, Peter who was afraid to admit knowing Jesus to a little girl, I wonder if these scared, insecure, uh, fearful, doubt-filled disciples are going to be able to actually do greater things. I wonder if they're even going to be able to pull themselves together after Jesus disappears. It's like the band of misfit brothers. Band of misfit toys. Band of brothers. World War II. Real tough guy. Like amazing series. Misfit toys. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with interpretation, application, or, uh, you know, anything. So, um, so heaven is looking down. And they saw, they saw this lame man sitting there all these years. They saw Peter and John walk past this lame man time after time after time. But this time, they saw Peter see the man. You know what happens when you see something that's been there all along? You realize your wife got a haircut three weeks later? And he turns and they turn their attention to the man. They say, look at us. And heaven is looking down and going, they're going to do it. They saw Jesus heal that man. They saw Jesus feed the multitude with the bread. They saw Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. They saw the disciples get dejected. They saw the disciples be sad. They saw Peter stand up and preach a great message in Acts chapter 2. And, and now they're setting their eyes on this guy who is lame since birth. And they're like, he's going to do it. He's going to do what Jesus did. This is it. The church has been birthed. They're going to start moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. And and heaven is looking down, I think, with great anticipation and joy and great hope and great adoration of of Christ going, Jesus, you did it. We didn't believe in Peter. (laughs) We didn't believe in John, but you trained them up and you gave them your Holy Spirit. You saw something where we saw nothing and it's about to go down. And so they got to see this happen. I want to talk about the friends of this lame man who faithfully brought their lame friend to the gate beautiful to beg for alms every day. Every day, just faithfully bringing their friend, helping their friend get to the place so that he could contribute. And that was all the, contri- all the contribution he could have was the alms that were c- collected. It was a common thing in that time for people with disabilities to be brought to the temple to beg for alms because giving alms was required. And so it's a great place to be if something's required to be there to receive. I think people were also just more likely to give when you, when you left the temple because you were feeling inspired. You were feeling good. You remembered the great hope for the Jewish people. They, their great hope was that the Messiah would come Peter and John are about to go in there in just a minute and let them know the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. But you'd be more likely to get something when people were feeling inspired and feeling hopeful, feeling expectant. And then the Pharisees loved to be seen doing good things. And so the Pharisees most certainly would have dropped as little as possible, as loudly as possible, so that people would know that they were doing a good thing and they were doing the right thing. 
Look at me, I'm pious. Kink. And I think that's why um, later Peter, uh, Peter says, it's not because of our piety that this man was healed, but it was by the power of Jesus Christ. That's later in the narrative that we did not read. It's not because of my piety. It's not because of my religious act. It's not because I grabbed him by the right hand. It's not because he looked in my eyes. It's not because of anything else, but it's because of the power of Jesus that this man was healed. And so these friends were, were good friends and they did everything they could. They did the best that they absolutely could. And all they could was get him to the place that he could provide, but they couldn't bring healing. A shout out to all of you who've been the best friends that you can be and have done the best that you absolutely could. Where you've brought your friends as far as you can make it, as far as you can bring them, but you've been unable to take it to that next step. Let's talk about Peter and John. They're just going to church for a prayer meeting. And they see this guy, as I've, as I've already noted, that they've seen how many countless times before because the dude was there every day and they had to go to the temple to pray every day. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we learn uh, the, the, the understanding that our bodies are the temple and not the building is the temple of, of God. Uh, but and up until about Hebrews, uh, the, the early Christian church still went to the temple to worship God because it's the same, it's the same God. It's Yahweh. Right? So it's, it's not that Jesus is a different God. It, it's that we have a, a broader understanding of who Yahweh is and what his purpose is. We understand that he is a triune God, three in one, that he is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Spirit, all at the same time in a fancy thing called the hypostatic union that nobody really understands, so we give as many complicated words to it as we possibly can to hide the fact that we don't really know what we're talking about. We know what we're talking about. We just don't understand it because there are certain things about an infinite God that are beyond our finite ability to understand, right? Okay, thank you. We're not going to get into that today. Uh, They'd seen him before. They'd passed by him and this need shows up. A need that was always there that they hadn't been aware of. Peter and, Jan, Peter and John had never been paralyzed in their legs. They were fishermen. Peter was a fisherman. They had never been paralyzed in their legs, so how could they possibly know how to help a man who was paralyzed in his legs? Isn't that oftentimes why we feel disqualified to help someone? I can't help them. I've never, I've never had a drug addiction. I can't help that person. I've never... I've never had a, a divorce. Well, I can't help that person. I've, I've never lost a loved one so close to me. I can't help that person. I've never been pregnant. How can I help someone whose n- pain or need I've never experienced? So I want to encourage you today, if you feel like just because you haven't experienced a certain thing, you can't help somebody in their place of need, that's just... That's just insecurity. See, I just encouraged you by calling you insecure. What I meant to do was to say, what I meant to do 
was say that it's not about you or what your experience it is, but it, what your experience is, but it's about the power of the Holy Spirit moving through you and you just being willing, you just being bold enough, you just being brave enough to step out and give the, op, the give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to move. Right, and then it's not on you anyway. You know the greatest and worst part about being a pastor is that I can't change anybody's heart. I can't fix anybody's life. I can't cause you to believe. I, if, if I argue you into belief or into understanding, you could be argued right back out of it. And, but the Holy Spirit can move on your heart and persuade you with an everlasting persuasion. And it doesn't mean that you have to believe perfectly all the time. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have moments of doubt, but the overarching theme that your belief is certain that, yeah, he did rise from the dead. There's an, uh, gosh, time. There was this neat thing I saw online the other day. Um, uh, D.A. Carson, I think is his name. He's a, uh, he's a theologian. He's a reformed guy. And he basically said at, at Passover, Passover is the story uh, where Moses went to Pharaoh and he's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And then the last plague that happened is uh, uh, Moses told everybody, hey, put blood on the, on the posts of your door. And an angel of death is going to pass over and he's going to kill the firstborn son in every house that doesn't have blood on the doorposts. D.A. Carson takes a moment and he explains uh, and, and, he, and he brings to life the conversation that was going on between two neighbors, not in the biblical, biblical account, but we're certain is the kind of conversation that goes on because it's the same kind of conversation that you and I have. And the people in the Bible are people too. And so D.A. Carson tells a story about, um, I don't know, we'll just say um, Thomas and, I need a good Hebrew name, Ben, Benjamin. <laughs> so we've got Thomas, and ben. is Thomas a Hebrew name, Ben? Um, Give me another one. I need a Hebrew name. Jacob, we're going with Benjamin and Jacob. Good Hebrew names. Because Ben said so. And so Benjamin's like, man, I put the, I put the blood on the door. I feel really, I, I, feel, I feel pretty good about tonight. It's, this is going to be, it, it, this is tragic, but I'm glad that my family is protected. Who just said that? Was it Ben? Okay, good. Ben's in faith. Jacob's not. Jacob, or J- Jacob's nervous. Jacob's like, Ben, I, I, I see you. I put the blood on too, but I'm nervous. I don't. I'm just not sure. I put the blood on, but I'm scared that, that, that the angel of death might still kill my son. And Ben's like, I'm not scared at all. I'm, I, I know I've got this. I got the blood. I'm good. Jacob is not, he, he's persuaded enough to put the blood on the doorpost, but he's not absolutely positively certain. He's scared to death, but he's, he's hoping that the blood will be sufficient. And D.A. DA Carson asked this question. Now, which... Which man lost his son? Neither. Because it's not on the merit of their belief, but it's on the merit of the blood. It's not how well and permanently you believe, but it's on what Jesus Christ did for you. 
on your behalf. It's not how well you can minister to somebody or how well you can empathize with somebody or how well you've felt their pain or how well you've come out of their pain, but it's how well can Jesus meet a person in their pain? How well can Jesus minister through you to this person in their pain? You know, Peter and John, uh, Peter and um, John, they didn't need a song to get them in the right place to be able to. Have you ever felt like, you know, I'm needed right now. I got to warm up, right? Like Usain Bolt, as amazing as he is, needs to warm up before he goes out and races, right? Like I, I love having worship before I get up and preach because it just, everything kind of falls away and you're like, man, I get to get up and there's a great environment and it's cool and I, I'm ready. My heart's prepared. People's hearts are prepared to, to receive a word and to hear from God. Uh, but Peter and John are just walking through the street trying to go to prayer. Like they're not even in the meeting yet. And the guy's like, hey, I need something. And they're like, oh, they weren't like, hold on. We need to do, <laughs> we'll get you after the service or, you know, hold on, let me get a musician. It was really funny. I, I tried to look, I tried to look for a, uh, for a video for this, but in all the videos that I could find of this, they had really inspirational music playing in the background every time he got hurt. And I'm like, it definitely wasn't inspirational music playing in the background. Or, I mean, every time he got healed, there wasn't, there wasn't inspirational music playing in the background. The only, the sound in the background was a bustling street. Was people going into the temple? Was people begging for alms? Was people shoving and pushing and trying to get to where they needed to go? Cause it was a busy time. So they managed to, to have faith for and to see this man healed without the benefit of a worship leader bringing him to that place of inspiration where he was ready to put his hands in the air. They were ready just to do it. That's amazing. You know, we're all like Peter and John in, in one way or another. And my question for you related to this, in relation to being as Peter and John, Are you ready to give something? And what is it that you're ready to give? In their case, they didn't have gold or silver. They didn't have what the man wanted, but they had what the man needed. If you have an appointment with me about anything that you're up against, be it finances or marriage or or anything else, I'll just, spoiler alert, we're just going to talk about Jesus first. I know that I know that you guys are fighting and I know that you're yelling at each other and I know that you're impatient with each other. I know that you're frustrated and angry and and all bent out of shape at each other. I, I know that. I, see, I, I understand that. I've never been frustrated with my wife, though. <laughs> so I don't understand it. No, I'm just <laughs> been there. Got it. But what you don't need the most is a communication strategy. What you need the most is Jesus. And then it's because Jesus is the one that can transform your heart. You don't need a communication strategy because without Jesus, what you're going to communicate probably isn't quite right. <laughs> right? I could tell you how to say what's on your heart. <laughs> but if Jesus hasn't gotten to what's on your heart, let's stay away from the communication. Let's, let's keep that as unclear as possible. <laughs> For as long as possible till Jesus can do something in your heart. You know, sometimes I'll go to Megan and I'll be talking about something or talking about something angry, right? And I'll be angry and I'll just be bent out of shape about something. She'll, she'll, she'll sweetly and sternly say, have you talked to Jesus about this yet? And she already knows the answer to that is no, because there's a, there's like a, an edge to it when I haven't been with Jesus, when I haven't talked to him about it yet. 
And I'm like, Megan, you need to fix this, and this is wrong, and I'm frustrated, and I'm, and she's like, you know, I can't fix these things. You need to go to Jesus. And when I go and talk to her about the things I'm frustrated with after I've gone to Jesus, it's a completely different kind of conversation. Not that she can still, not that she can fix it even. But at that point, she's like, I can provide empathy because I know that you're getting, you've gotten with the one who can fix this. We could spend all day there, couldn't we? So, I mean, so we got to go to Jesus before we go to each other. We're going to identify now the lame man's perspective. He's begging for alms like he had his entire life. He found a workaround to his disability. He found a way to contribute, found a way to, to at least get some money so that he could provide, so that he could eat, so that he could have some stuff, enough, enough to survive for 40 plus years. You know, oftentimes you and I work really hard to find a way, a workaround for our insecurity. We work really hard to find a workaround and we'll, we'll get our friends and our friends will carry us to a place. But everything that we've set up is just a gigantic workaround to the problem of our soul. The fear that we have and we'll, we'll bring our friends around and we'll have our friends deliver us to a place and we'll, we'll get our friends around and have parties. We'll, we'll try and get the promotions. We'll try and make the money. We'll try and get the car. We'll try and get the husband. We'll try and get the wife. We'll try and have the life on the outside that we think that everybody else has. But it's all just a, a big elaborate workaround. It's all a, a storefront, like those storefronts they do for movies, or at least they used to do. Now it's all graphics, right? But the old westerns where it's like, it's like you know, you, you see a whole city, but none of them are actually buildings. It's just a, a big false storefront. We, we work so hard to hide our insecurity. We work so hard to hide our brokenness. We work so hard to hide our pain, our guilt, our shame. Whatever it is that you're bringing, our unforgiveness. We'll bury it underneath, underneath uh, good clothes or dressing well or, or that's the same thing, giving lots of money. We'll bury it under all these different things and just try and create the appearance that everything's okay. Is anybody else guilty of that? So they have this gigantic workaround. This man was aware of his lameness and everybody else knew that he was lame but some of us have been working so hard at presenting something else, we don't even remember anymore that we're lame. We don't remember anymore that it was just, it was just a show in the beginning. And now it's who I am. As a side note, the, the lame man who, who gets healed, he would have to get a job someday. His knees were strengthened, his legs were strengthened, and his ankles were straightened, and everybody saw that he got healed. He can't show up on Tuesday <laughs> begging for alms anymore. Bro, you need to get a job. Man don't work, he don't eat. He had to get a job. And it was going to take a lot of hard work. In the moment, he was strengthened and jumping and leaping and elated, but he was going to have to learn how to use these things to work. And that would be a hard thing to do after not working for a long time. 
know, maybe it was a joy in the beginning. He's like, I've been so looking forward to working this apple cart. I was picturing Aladdin for some reason. (laughs) You know, and how many bad customers did it take before he's like, man, I wish I could just beg again. This is hard. I'm tired of pushing this cart back and forth. These people are rude. These people are awful. It's like, why did you heal me, Peter? That's not in the account. I just know people. God, thank you so much for this promotion. This job is awful. Thank you so much for my husband. He doesn't pick anything up. <laughs> I hope she heard that on the, in the nursing mom's room. Right, we look so forward to it, and then we're so cranky about what we got because it didn't it didn't satisfy everything we need. But sometimes we sometimes we're not willing to do the hard work that this man had coming. We want the miracle without the hard work. Or we've God has moved to heal us. The Holy Spirit has touched your heart and you felt it in a, in a worship service. You felt it in an altar call. You felt it in a, in, a, in a small group moment. You felt it when somebody prayed with you. You felt the Spirit of God touch your heart, but you didn't tend to the thing that he healed. You didn't guard it. Because even though God has touched your heart, you still, enough of you still doesn't want to forgive. Enough of you still wants to be angry and hold that person in contempt. After the miracle, there's still hard work to be done. Is all that I'm saying. And it doesn't mean that Christ's work was incomplete. It's that he's giving us an opportunity to participate with him. The part that surprised me the most in the last couple of years is how much we are the lame man. I always thought I was Peter and John. I always thought like I was the one that had the answers. I got Jesus. I always wanted to look past my own weakness because I thought that God was attracted to strength. The reality is God is attracted to our weakness and our brokenness. He's not repelled by it. The thing that he was repelled by for years in my life, I'm sure, was how much I thought I was okay without him. God can't draw near. He can. He's sovereign. But he chooses not to draw near to the person who refuses his presence. But our weakness he draws near to and our weakness his strength is made perfect. You know what I need my kids to do when I want to teach them how to draw something is let me teach them how to draw something. Let me show you how to use these scissors. No! You know, and they want to fight me. And how to use scissors. I'm fine. Don't cut it. That's not a star anyway. That's like (laughs) just making up shapes. That's not even a shape. And you won't even know that for like 15 years, that that's not even a thing. I'm going to take a picture of it. Make you find the area of this when you get into geometry, because you can't. It's not even a thing. Let me help you. 
because I'm, I'm not, I'm, I've got a worse attitude than God. God's like, stop fighting me. Let me lead you. Let me train you. Let me teach you. Let me draw close and heal you. Let me comfort you. Let me be your strength and your weakness. He's not surprised by your weakness. You're the only one that's surprised by your weakness. The people next to you know about your weakness. It's like the worst kept. You're the only one hidden to the secret of your weakness. It's like if you tell somebody like, hey, I've been kind of insecure in this area of my life. Everybody's going to be like, yeah. We know. And you haven't been talking about it with each other because you love. But like, we, we, you know, there was that knowing glance that we shared that time. We were aware. And God's not going to be surprised. He's not going to be repelled. He's not disgusted by your weakness. He is repelled by pride. He is repelled by pretense. He is repelled when we act like everything's okay and we don't need him. And here's the hardest part as I close is that, you know, we get the big rocks out of our garden early on, right? We enter into a relationship with Jesus and we're like, I should probably stop stealing cars. <laughs> that, that wasn't my story, but <laughs> I was a six-year-old villain. <laughs> Maybe I'll stop stealing cars. And, you know, stealing purses from old ladies. And, and then we feel like, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I haven't stolen a car in three years. I haven't stolen an old woman's purse in a few weeks. <laughs> They're more tempting. The, the purses were more tempting in my mind because it's an easier target. No GPS. I don't know. I'm just, I've got weaknesses, JC. <laughs> God's not surprised by my weakness. JC's like, you are dark. (laughs) What are we talking about, JC? So I haven't done this in a little while. And God starts to put his hands on the other things. And you may find that something that you got the big rock out of the way, 10 years later, God's saying, hey, you've got this little rock of covetousness. Now you've got a gravel, you've got a line of gravel 12 inches down that's keeping the roots from getting down deep. You got the big rock out. Good job. Good job allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you. Good job responding to conviction. Good job letting the Holy Spirit teach you. Getting those big rocks out of the garden. Good job. Well done. But as we mature with Jesus, it's not just about the big rocks anymore. Now it's about the little ones too. And saying, God, I want the little rocks out of my garden. I want the covetousness out that's manifested all throughout the garden. I want this, I want this unforgiveness out. I, I forgave this person, and now I've got to forgive this person? Yeah. The Holy Spirit will meet you every step of the way, and he's going to call us into maturity together. In the grand scheme of life, uh, this this miracle was temporary. It's amazing, but it was temporary. This dude's going to die someday. 
mean, he died like 2,000 years ago. But he's going to die. The more incredible miracle is the belief in Jesus that came as a result of his healing. The more incredible miracle is that when this man dies, he's going to live forever because he believes in Jesus. The more amazing miracle is not that everybody saw him leaping and dancing, not that everybody was amazed and astonished, not that everybody was stirred and was wowed. You know, that was, they probably had a praise break then, right? And they, they didn't have it on an organ, but, you know, something. And they had a praise break, and they had that moment, and they were worshiping, and they were excited, and Peter preached, and all these people were added to the church. And, but the, the amazing thing wasn't the service. It wasn't that moment. It wasn't that day. It's eternity that was changed because these men had faith to reach out to this man in his weakness. This man in his weakness had an expectation to receive something from them. He got more than he ever imagined. And now hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, are added to the kingdom. And even today, people are continuing to be added to the kingdom because of this man's weakness, because of Peter and John's faith, and because of the faithfulness of God. They refused to turn them away because of their weakness. It's amazing that God healed a weak man, a man with lameness in his legs, through the ministry of a man who denied knowing Jesus to a girl. So if you feel weak today, welcome to the club. Congratulations. We are well positioned for God to use us mightily if we would admit our weakness, if we would admit our lameness and invite the Holy Spirit to transform us and change us.